Open your Bibles to Romans chapter 6. Romans 6. If you didn't bring a Bible with you this morning, we have Bibles available for you to use in the pew rack in front of you. If you'll take one of those black Bibles out and open it up to page 1130, 1130, you'll arrive at Romans chapter 6 which is where we are this morning. Parenting has many rich and rewarding experiences. And many of those experiences revolve around what I call the first. The first. Those are things like the first full night's sleep. That is a rich and rewarding experience as a parent. There's also the first step. There's the first birthday cake. First word. First day of school. First book ever read. And the first driving lesson. The first driving lesson. I have had the privilege of teaching all of my children to drive. Zach helped me with Stacy, uh, and I needed help there, but. (laughs) Isn't that right, Zach? It was a good test to see whether he had the patience to marry her. But it has been a privilege to teach all of the, the children to drive. And the parking lot of uh, here at Foothill Bible Church was the, uh, the test course, driving around those um, planters and making them back around them in a figure eight just to uh, try to work on their uh, driving skills. I learned to drive back in Massachusetts where I grew up. My dad taught me to drive. And there we have winter weather, real winter weather, with all kinds of snow and ice on the ground and so forth. And so learning to drive there is different than learning to drive here in sunny Los Angeles. There you need to learn what to do when the roads are slippery. And so I was taught that uh, when you are pulling up to a traffic light or a stop sign, particularly if it's on an incline, that you needed to, even with an automatic transmission, you needed to take it out of gear and apply your brakes, you know, slowly pumping your brakes so that you would come to a full stop because if you left it in drive the wheels would just continue to slip on the ice and you would sort of coast through the intersection which may not be a very good idea if there's someone coasting through in the other direction so unless you broke the grip of the power of the engine over the wheels the wheels kept turning kept turning And that's kind of an illustration, really, in one sense, of what the Apostle Paul is talking about for us here in Romans chapter 6. Breaking the grip of sin over our lives. Disconnecting the power, if you will, that drives the wheels of sin. Now, I said it illustrates it only in one sense. Because it's not we, you know, unlike driving, you know, you put it into neutral, you break the power. Unlike that, we don't break the power of sin. God does. 
God breaks the power of sin. He disengages the engine, if you will, by His grace in our lives. And that's what we are studying last week and this week and in the week or two to follow. Breaking the grip of sin upon our lives. Now, last week was uh, we were looking at some pretty serious theology and we're going to have to do it again this week. So, again, you're going to have to really work hard with me. You're going to have to pay attention closely. You're going to have to follow the text and you're going to have to think through this process. And we generally as a culture uh, have become a non-thinking culture. We like things sliced and diced and, and uh, simplified for us. And so thinking is something that, that is, uh, we have to work at. Even in the Christian life, it's kind of that way. People, they want ten steps, twelve steps, three steps, four steps. Just give me the recipe. It's kind of the attitude. Give me the recipe. Tell me what it is I need to do and I'll do it. But don't make me think. Don't make me think. But God doesn't work with us that way. In fact, if that is our attitude towards the Christian life, just tell me what it is I need to do or need to stop doing and I'll do it and then everything will be fine. That is the path to legalism. In which the Christian life now becomes defined as a whole big series of rules that I keep, things I do, things I don't do. The flesh cannot be restrained by the flesh. Okay, that is a fundamental axiom of the Christian life. So if it's just, give me the rules, you're headed for disaster. God has arranged things in a different way. And that is that God works through the mind, to the heart, and out through the hands. It comes in first through the mind. And so when He instructs us, He instructs us so that we might understand and then we might believe and then we might do. And we're actually going to see that this morning in the text before us. So the tension here really in this passage is is a sort of between what I would call antinomianism, anti-against, uh, nomos law, against the law, the idea that you can sin with impunity because the grace of God is just going to cover it all over anyways, and God gets tremendous glory by displaying His grace, so just keep on sinning, let Him keep on pouring out grace, keep getting glory, and everybody's happy. Paul says, right, may it never be. That is an abhorrent thought, and we talked about that in detail last week. So that's sort of one ditch on the side of the road. The other ditch on the other side of the road is just tell me what to do. Give me a set of rules and I'll keep them and everything will be fine. And that was Pharisaic Judaism. And that's bankrupt too. So you can't fall into the ditch to say it doesn't matter what I do. I do whatever I want and God just forgives me. Right? I'm in the business to sin. God's in the business to forgive and we're both happy. That doesn't work. And the rules... Don't work. So it's got to be God's way. And God's way is first, we need to understand something about what He has done. Then we must, by faith, believe it, apprehend it, take it into our lives, and then it works out practically through our hands. So that's where we're going. But we have another week of working on the mind. So we are transforming the mind this morning, okay? Okay. 
Romans 6, let me just begin reading the text. Verse 1, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace might increase? May it never be. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? Therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism into death. In order that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him, that our body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin, for he who has died is freed from sin. Stop right there. We said last week as we introduced this whole new section of Paul's epistle to the Romans, a section chapter 6, 7, and 8, dealing with sanctification, being set apart, being made holy, that there are in this section, just verses 1 through 14, there are seven essential truths. Seven essential truths that we must understand with the head. We must believe with the heart, and then we must act upon with the hands so that we will break the grip of sin in our own lives. Okay? In through the head, to the heart, and out through the hands. Last week I introduced the two of them. First two for you, verses 1 and 2. The first truth was that you have died to sin. That is a truth you must understand. You have died to sin. Secondly, in verses 3 through 5, you have been united with Christ. The second truth you must understand. You have been united with Christ. The third before us this morning in verses 6 and 7 is that you have been delivered from sin's power. Okay, You have been delivered from sin's power. Paul will make his case here, verses 6 and 7. Notice he begins by saying, knowing this, knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him. He's resuming his argument, the basic argument that he introduced in verse 2, how shall we who died to sin still live in it? He had a, a bit of a, of a diversion there, or a sidetrack, as he talked about baptism as the illustration of the death, burial, and resurrection of the, of the believer with Christ. He's now returning back to this discussion of our unity with Christ and talking about our death with Him. That our old self was crucified with Him. What he's doing is he's, he's sharpening his point here. He made the general statement, verse 2, we have died to sin. Now he's going to sharpen it, he's going to elaborate it, he's going to give us more detail about what it means to have died to sin. So knowing this, uh, I think is, is just is a way, a rhetorical way for him to resume the discussion. It's possible that he's talking about something they already know, but, but I, I think it's more that it's a rhetorical device here. You can go in a way you like with it. He's back into the argument in either case. He says, knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him. Now, that immediately raises a question. The question that it raises is, what does it mean that our old self was crucified with Christ? What does that mean? What does it mean 
And what is the significance of that event once we know what it does mean? That's where we need to begin to break this verse down. Verse 6. So I'm going to break it down with you. We're going to sort of pull it apart, look at all the aspects of it, and then we'll pull it all back together again at the end. And I think we'll have a much better understanding of this. And this, this is key. Verse 2, I said, is, is key to the whole section, and that's true. This is really an elaboration of what verse 2 is saying. So this is a more detailed explanation of what verse 2 is saying. That our old self was crucified with Him. Crucifixion equals execution. Okay? Just note that. Crucifixion equals execution. It is full, it is final, and it is complete. It is capital punishment. It is the death penalty. It is the execution reserved for criminals. You know, when Paul wrote this, the cross had a whole different meaning than it does today. Think about that. I mean, the cross has been tamed today to a certain degree. I mean, it's become a piece of jewelry. It's become a piece of artwork. We don't see it very often as the gory, bloody, terrifying instrument of execution that it really was. When Paul says we've been crucified with Christ, he is talking about our execution. Full and complete. The very stark reality that he's addressing here. He is speaking to a people, many of whom have seen a crucifixion where the victim screams in agony as they die. He's saying, you're dead. You're dead. It's full. It's final. It's complete. It's judicial. It's over. Executed. And notice he says, though, that this crucifixion occurred in unity with Christ, with Him. You see that? Verse 6. Our old self was crucified with Him. Now, I, I labored this point last time, so I'm not going to labor it this time, but, but we do need to remember the big context in which all of this is occurring. The context is set up for us at the end of chapter 5. Chapter 5, beginning at verse 12 and running all the way through to verse 21, the end of the chapter. And you remember I told you last time, chapter divisions are a late addition to the Scripture. And so to, to receive this letter, to, re, to read this letter, to hear it read, you, you wouldn't read to the end of chapter 5 and stop and say, well, I'll go home next week, come back, I'll read you chapter 6. There are no chapters. So you're going to be reading and what's going to be in your mind is what Paul is introducing here in what we call chapter 5, verses 12 through 21. And then he's going to move right into this discussion. And the motif of chapter 5, verses 12 to 21, the big context is the Adam-Christ paradigm. That the whole world is in one or the other, is related to one or the other, is positionally in the mind of God part of one or the other. You are in Adam or you are in Christ. There's only two. I can remember after I became a believer, I had this old Baptist preacher. He says there's only two kinds of people in the world. Saints and ain'ts. And uh, you're either a saint or you ain't. 
There are only two kind of people in the world. There are those that are in Adam and those that are in Christ. So that context is is all part of what he's talking about here and must be kept in mind or we will completely misinterpret what he's trying to tell us. So when he says here, verse six, that our old self was crucified with him, he's not talking about our conscious personal participation in the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. It's not like you were transported back in time, you know, you get into the time machine and back you go, you know, and somehow you're nailed there too. What he's talking about is your position as God has arranged it and as He actually sees it. And it is real. It is real. This is not some sort of mental mind game here. It is absolutely real. If God sees you this way, this is how you are. You are in Adam or you are in Christ. And so what Paul says is that in the mind of God, you were transported, as it were, back there and you are united with Christ there at His crucifixion. And when He was crucified and executed, you were too. You were too. Notice again, verse 6. He says it's our old self that was crucified. Literally, our old man. Our old man crucified. This is a reference to our old life. The life in union with Adam. It is that old life, that old man, that old existence in Adam that was crucified. It's our pre-conversion state. Maybe that's a good way to say it. It was our pre-conversion state. The old unregenerate you. Executed in union with Christ. And then, as Paul had said earlier last week, because of that union with Christ, as Christ rose from the dead, you rose from the dead with him. New life replaced the old life. Kainos, a, a life new in terms of quality or character. Right? Remember 2 Corinthians 5.17, If many man be in Christ, he is a what? New creation. The old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Kainos, new in quality, new in character. Now it is a mistake. It is a mistake in my judgment to assume that the old man and the new man, which, by the way, Paul mentions in Colossians chapter 3, verses 9 through 11, and Ephesians 4, 22 to 24, two other places where this old man, new man thing is mentioned. It's a mistake in my judgment to, to assume or, 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 uh, or understand him to be referring to parts or natures of man. So when he says old man, I don't think he's referring to our old nature. Okay? Or the old part of us. To go down that road, and there are commentators who go down that road, and there are good commentators who go down that road. I think when you go down that road, you, you, you end up into a fruitless discussion about what is the, a new believer really all about. Is it the old nature was executed and a new nature is then given to us? But if that's 
true, then why in Ephesians are we told to put off the old man and put on the new if it already occurred? Or others talk about having an old nature and a new nature in us simultaneously. And there's, you know, it's kind of warring within us. A Dr. Jekyll, Mr. Hyde. Some days uh, I'm kind of good and some days I'm pretty bad. A little, you know, a little uh, pitchfork guy on one shoulder and an angel on the other, right? So it's this kind of tension that we're, we're split personality, we're schizophrenic or something or other. So I just don't think that's a good way to go. And I don't think contextually that's what Paul's really talking about anyway. So I don't believe he's making an ontological statement, okay? Ontology, a statement of being. I don't think he's talking about our being. He's talking about our position. He's making a relational statement. What he's saying is our position or our relationship has changed. Positionally, relationally, we were in Adam. And we have been crucified. And we have been raised positionally, relationally, now in union with Jesus Christ. So our old man is not our Adamic nature or our sin nature. But what we were in Adam. We were inhabitants of the old age, if I can say it that way. Who lived under the tyranny of sin and death. John Stott puts it this way, quote, What was crucified with Christ was not a part of me called my old nature, but the whole of me as I was before I was converted. That's important. Again, look at the text. He said the old self was crucified with him. All of something died on that cross. Not just part of us. All of something died. Now the implications of this are huge. Absolutely huge. Because herein lies the power to break the grip of sin over our lives and to give us the ability to lead a holy life. It lies here. Our old self was crucified with Him. That our body of sin might be done away with. You see that? Our the crucifixion of our old self, our old man in unity with Christ has a purpose. You see it right there in, after the common verse 6. That, so it's called in the Greek a hina clause, a purpose clause. That or so that our body of sin might be done away with. This crucifixion has a purpose. Katargeo is the Greek word translated here, done away with. Katargeo. And this word does not mean destroy. It does not mean destroy in the sense of eliminate. It is transferred, I think it's in the King James, as destroy. But a better translation here is, is the idea of nullify. Nullify. Or release from. Or render ineffective by removing its power. That would be a better way to translate katargeo. You can see this, by the way. Paul uses this word a number of times here, even in Romans. So, for example, Romans chapter 3, verse 3. What then? 
If some did not believe, their unbelief will not katargeo, nullify the faithfulness of God. Okay? That is, render it ineffective. Verse 31, chapter 3. Do we then nullify the law through faith? Do we render the law ineffective through faith? Paul says, may it never be. Chapter 4, verse 14. For if those who are under the law are heirs, their faith is made void and the promise is katargeo, nullified. Okay, so you can see that he uses it over and over again. I'll give you one more. Chapter 7, verse 2. For if the married woman is bound by law to her husband while he is living, but if her husband died, she is released from the law concerning her husband. So she's released from. Same verb. Okay, so when it says done away with, it has the idea of nullify. We, the old man, was crucified with Christ so that our body of sin might be nullified. Might be nullified. Might be rendered ineffective by removing its power. Okay? That's huge. Very, very important. So Paul says this crucifixion actually accomplishes something. You see that? That is really important there. It's not just something that might happen or something that we're supposed to do. We're not told to crucify ourselves. He's telling us something that has happened. And he's saying that the result of what has happened is that the body of sin has been nullified for us. Our body of sin nullified. So it is this body of sin that is nullified. Well, it is not a reference to the human body. Let's just begin with that. Okay? It is not a reference to the human body. He's not saying that the human body was nullified or that the human body was rendered ineffective. And notice the way he describes this here. He calls it a body of sin. So he's talking about something evil here. If we were to believe or teach that the body is the problem of our sin, that it is our human body that is our problem, we would fall into the ancient heresy of Gnosticism. The idea that the human flesh is, is, the, is the evil thing and that the spirit is the good thing and that we just must be separated from our evil bodies. Okay? That is a pagan notion. That is not Christian at all. The biblical doctrine of creation, incarnation, and resurrection all give a very high view to the human body. It is God's intended vehicle through which we express ourselves. I hope you like your body, by the way, because it's yours forever. Okay? It's going to be remade, but it's yours. Okay? God gave it to you. In fact, over in uh, just a... I don't want to bang this room too long, but Romans 12, verse 1, just, just to refresh yourself on this, Paul says, Romans 12, 1, I urge you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your what? Your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. So the human body itself is capable of living a holy life and expressing worship to God. So it's not an evil thing at all. 
So what does it mean then? What does this expression mean that we were the old man was crucified with Christ purpose clause so that our body of sin might be nullified or rendered powerless or ineffective? What Paul's talking about here is what is commonly called the flesh, the flesh, or if you like, the old nature. It is our fallen self-centered, sin-prone faculties through which we interact with the world around us. It is our will, it is our emotions, it is our body, it is all of that. Okay? The body of sin. The flesh. Now, often our sin is acted out through our human bodies. Isn't that true? It is often acted out that way. And, and perhaps that's why Paul chose this expression, body of sin, to speak about what he wanted to. You know, as, um, as believers, we know from Scripture and we know from personal experience that we still sin. Isn't that right? That sin is still very much a part of us. We still sin regularly, and we still sin at times grievously. But here's the key. We don't sin hopelessly. Okay? We sin regularly. At times, we sin grievously, but we do not sin hopelessly. We do not sin hopelessly. Why? Because, verse 6 again, our body of sin, our flesh, our old nature has been nullified. Do you see that? It has been nullified. So that, the final purpose clause there, the end of verse 6, we should no longer be slaves to sin. That's why I can say we don't sin hopelessly. We were crucified with Christ. We were, we were united with Christ in His crucifixion positionally, relationally, died there, and were raised to newness of life in Jesus Christ positionally and relationally so that the power of the flesh which enslaved us to sin could be rendered ineffective. That we would no longer be slaves to sin. This is massive. This is absolutely massive. The reason God removed us from our union with Adam and joined us with Christ in union with Him is so that the inclination towards sin, which runs so strongly, would not dominate us. He doesn't eliminate it, it's not gone. But it doesn't dominate. It doesn't dominate. It, it no longer is able to dominate. Very important. It is no longer able. From the moment of conversion onward, sin cannot dominate you. This is the gospel, by the way. 
Beloved, this is the gospel we're talking about. It is not just, you know, trust in the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be in heaven with him someday. And between now and then, oh, man, it's bad. I'll pray for you. What he's saying to you is that the Lord Jesus Christ, when he died on that cross, not only has eternally secured your position with God the Father, but he has broken the dominion of slavery of sin over your life and has transported you into a newness of life in which you can now begin to live holy for God. Now that is worth telling about. And this slavery, by the way, just the significance of it all. This slavery has ended for all believers, regardless of their maturity. Okay, this is huge. This is not 15 years from now after you've studied the Bible over and over and over again and grown in your knowledge of Christ. Then you will be free from the dominion. He's saying at the moment of conversion. You are freed. Doesn't matter whether you're 70 years old or seven years old, you were freed. That moment in time. It's an event that has occurred. It is not a responsibility to be performed. Do you understand that? It is something God has done for you. It is not a command of something you must do for yourself. God has done this to you. By the way, He didn't even ask your permission. I don't know if that bothers you or not. But He didn't even bother to ask your permission. He just did it. He liberated you in a moment in time. This is a reality. A reality that, by the way, does generate ethical implications. There are very serious ethical, moral, behavioral implications of this truth. Verses 11 through 13, we'll get there. <laughs> Next week, I guess we get there. We'll begin to unpack those. So it's not, let us continue to sin that grace may abound and God will receive the glory and everybody's happy. There are real ethical implications of this reality, but the reality is here nonetheless. Slavery dead, broken, nullified. Listen carefully. Paul is not teaching. Paul is not teaching that the believer is no longer capable of committing sin. Okay? He is not teaching that. But what he is teaching is that the believer is no longer obligated to commit sin. Okay? He's not saying that you're no longer capable of sinning. And of course, you all know that by experience anyway. But what he is saying is that you are no longer obligated to sin. You are no longer under compulsion to sin. You are no longer under the tyranny of sin. 
Your slavery has been broken. It has been nullified. It has been rendered ineffective. Its power has been stripped in terms of its total dominance over you. What that means is that as a follower of Jesus Christ, we can no longer say, I cannot stop such and such. Fill in the blank. I can't. I cannot stop thinking these thoughts, saying these things, doing these things, whatever. I can't. What we have to say is, I don't want to. I don't want to. And there is a big difference, beloved, between I can't and I don't want to. See, you can repent of I don't want to. There's no repentance from I can't. You see the difference? Paul illustrates it for us here, verse 7. Verse 7 is an illustration. For he who has died is freed from sin. The connection is between the death crucified with Christ and our freedom from sin. That is, we are no longer slaves to sin. In verse 6. They're put together here as an illustration. It's really just a statement of a, of a general maxim, a, a truism of life. Death frees a person from the control of sin. That's what it's saying. Okay, that's kind of common knowledge. It was common knowledge then. It's common knowledge now. For example, if a person were a drunkard, when they die, they are free from the control of drunkenness. Isn't that true? Okay. Death frees you from the control of sin. Same construction, by the way, same grammatical construction, uh, chapter 7, verse 3, where it says there that death frees from the law. Middle of the verse. Okay, same construction. Death frees you from the law. It frees you from sin. It ends its dominion over you. Jim uh, Berg, B-E-R-G, Jim Berg, in a very, very fine book, which uh, we do sell in our book nook, and a number of you have read, and I would commend it to all of you to read, called Changed into His Image. Changed into His Image. He deals with this in um, pretty good detail. And he has an illustration here about being freed from sin. Let me read it to you. Let's say that you have been renting a home from a man named Mr. Brown. On the first of every month, he comes to your door to collect the rent. This month, Mr. Brown sold the home to Mr. Smith. To your surprise, when the rent is due next month, Mr. Brown shows up at your door again to collect the rent. In months past, you were required to pay Mr. Brown. You were under his power. When he sold the house, however, his power to collect the rent was broken. You can pay him if you want to, but you do not have to. You are now required to pay the new landlord. You see that? Everybody exists in servitude. Everybody. Every one of you is a slave 
this morning. I am a slave this morning. You are either a slave of sin or you are a slave of who? Christ. Okay, You're always a slave. But what has happened here when you were the old man was crucified with Christ. That the slavery over you in regard to your flesh and the dominion of sin, the domination of sin was nullified, was broken. It can't collect the rent anymore. It has no legal right to collect the rent. It can't make you pay. Now, as they said in the illustration, you can pay if you want to, but it can't make you pay. But under Christ, you are obligated to pay, to obey. It takes us to our fourth truth. The fourth is your emancipation is permanent. Verses 8 8 through 10. Your emancipation is permanent. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him. Knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again. Death is no longer, or excuse me, death no longer is master over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life that he lives, he lives to God. Verse 8 is the link between theology and practice. The link is faith. Okay, so verse 8 is kind of the linkage verse in this section. Verses 11 through 13 deal with practice, things to do. Okay, through uh, 1 through 7 deals with theology, things to know. Verse 8 is the linkage that puts those two together. Notice how he's constructed. Now, if we have died with Christ, okay, and that's not in doubt here, by the way. Probably you could translate it easily enough. Since we have died with Christ, we believe, there's where faith comes in, that we shall also live with him. Sanctification is not a, not a progress because of our self-determination or our willpower. It progresses as Christ and his benefits are appropriated by faith. That's how it works. Okay? Remember I told you before, you're not saved by grace and sanctified by struggle. Okay? It's not pull yourself up by your bootstraps and just do the right thing. It is as we by faith embrace what God has done and the implications of what God has done that the process of sanctification works out in our lives. It is a faith-based sanctification. And this faith is not a, a wishful thinking, but it is, a, it is rooted in the historical reality of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And that's what verses 9 and 10 are all about. Knowing that Christ has been raised from the dead, never to die again, and so forth. You see it. It's all grounded in the, in the reality of Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. You know, Jesus was not like Lazarus. I always thought Lazarus got a bit of a raw deal, personally. Okay? Right? To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And then he goes and gets yanked back. Okay? I don't think that's all that great. His sisters might have liked it, but I don't even think for them. You know, they've got to go through the grieving deal all over again. For Lazarus, he comes back, he's got to die again. Okay? But Jesus died how many times? Once and for all. Okay? Once and all. For all, his, his death, his burial, his resurrection is final. 
It is final. It's irreversible. His resurrection means that he will no longer die. Do you see this verse 9? Knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again. Death is no longer master over him. Death no longer rules over him. When he came into the world in his incarnation, he, he voluntarily came under the influence of the powers of the old age. The power of sin, verse 10, talks about that. He died to sin. He lived once for all for God. He came under the power of the law, Galatians 4.4. 4. He came under the power of death. Verse 23 here, the wages of sin is death. Christ entered voluntarily, surrendered, and entered under these powers of the old age. But He has broken them once and for all by His death, burial, and resurrection. See, He has conquered them. All right, it says in Hebrews 1, verse 3, that after He had made purification for sins, He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Hebrews 1, 3. Never to repeat it again. That's, by the way, why it's empty. That's why that cross is empty. Okay? It was used and then that's it. He doesn't die over and over again. He died once. Why? Verse 10. Because it's no longer, verse 9 rather, it's no longer master over him. The death that he died, he died to sin once for all. The life that he lives, he lives to God. Let's think with me. For three brief days, just three brief days, death held the Savior in his grip. And we recited the Apostles' Creed when we began. For three brief days, death held the Savior in his grip. In its grip. But it couldn't hold on to him. Couldn't hold him. Because he was not guilty of any personal sin. Death could not retain him. That's what Peter says in Acts 2.24. Death could not hold him. He only died as a result of bearing the sin of his people. So death could not contain him. Likewise, death has no power to recall him to experience it again. He is the living Lord. The living Lord. Just as Jesus could not die again, that His resurrection is permanent, so we, dying in union with Him, cannot die again. And cannot live anymore in that old age. We have been transported by His resurrection to the new age. Let me say it this way. You can't go back to Egypt. Okay? You can't go back to Egypt. You have been transported from one age to another. To the extent that you were confident in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ and all that it means, that is to the extent that you should be confident in what it has accomplished on your behalf. Okay? How sure are you that sin no longer is master over you. You should be just as sure as you are that death is no longer master over Christ. That's permanent. That's permanent. 
this is tough stuff. This is a heavy-duty theology. We've been working away here, twisting our brains around this. Why? Why? Why not just jump right ahead? Why is it necessary for Paul to lay this theological groundwork? Because how you think directly affects how you behave. If you do not think correctly, rightly, you will not behave correctly, rightly. You will live as if sin still has you in slavery. If you do not understand and believe that it is does not. And again, this is not a mind game. This is not just, well, if I believe this, it'll be true. This is a reality that has happened. You are called to embrace it by faith. Some of you are like elephants, like little baby elephants. The other week, uh, my folks were here. We went down to the, to the uh, wild animal park. We had a great time down there. We saw all these elephants. Some are like little baby elephants. You know, in the circus, when they, uh, they want to train a baby elephant, according to what I read, they put a big chain around their back leg and they chain them to a, to a big steel post in the ground. The little baby elephant pulls against the chain and pulls against the chain, but he can't break the chain and can't move the post. And so over time, the elephant becomes conditioned to thinking that uh, it can't break the chain. But as the elephant grows bigger, then they reduce the size of the chain. To eventually, a fully trained elephant can be tied up with just a simple hemp rope that could be easily snapped by a full-grown elephant. But it doesn't even pull against the rope. It doesn't even try to break it, even though it easily could. See, because it has been conditioned to think that it is still bound to the stake. So that's like some here this morning. You think you're bound in sin. You think sin still is your master. And so you don't think you can overcome it. So you've given up trying. You don't even try anymore. Temptation comes to you and boom, you fall right into it. You don't even resist it anymore. It's as if you are a slave. But I'm here to tell you in the strength of the Word of God that if you know Christ as your Savior, you are not a slave. You are not a slave. You can repent. You must repent. You must. If you're here this morning and that's true of you, you've been going about the Christian life the wrong way. And if you go about it the wrong way, you will get the wrong results. If you will go about it God's way, you will get God's results. Now again, listen carefully. I am not promising sinless perfection. What I'm promising you is hope. Victory over sin. It comes as you understand, as you believe, and then as you act upon the truth of what the Word of God has to say for you right here. Here's my takeaway for you this morning. This week, I want you to read the passage again. 
And then I want you to read it again. And then I want you to read it a third time. And I want you to think about what it says. And I want you to put your name into the pronouns. Verse 6, knowing this, David, that my old self was crucified with him. That my body of sin might be nullified and that I, David, should no longer be a slave to sin. I just want you to meditate on the passage that way. Personalize it. Because if you know Christ, this is true. This is true. Now believe it. Let's pray. Father God, please increase our faith. For even that is a gift from You. It is not something that we muster up on our own strength and power. It is not something that varies day to day based on our fatigue levels or stress levels or whether we had a good breakfast in the morning or not. It is a gift from You that, like all others, we are called upon to receive and hang on to and then act upon. Lord, please strengthen our faith to believe what has been taught to us last week and this week together. The incredible and amazing reality that sin is no longer our master, but that Christ is. Please, Lord, let us get a hold of that thought. Let it resonate in our hearts. Let us rejoice in its reality so that we could begin then to see it practically worked out in our lives. Lord, we want to be the holy people You have called us to be. In Christ's name, Amen.